0: Welcome to Coffee Time with Byron. I am your host, Byron. This is episode number 69. Alongside me is former Major Leaguer with the Expos, Marlins, and Tigers. And I want to say, are you still currently a broadcaster or
1: no with the Blue Jays? Yes, I am, Byron. Thanks for having me. I am working with Sportsnet in canada that is our national network and is the uh, network that airs every toronto blue jays game and i work alongside jamie campbell on our pre and post game show it's called blue Jays central 30 minute show before every game and then we come in during the game a couple of times with some comments and then we wrap it up post game so uh, we're on every single game we do 162 i work about 135 140 games a season
0: so i gotta ask you did you ever did you ever think of did you ever think about that? Oh yeah, growing up. Oh yeah, I'm going to be an
1: analyst growing up. Did you ever think? No, that? I, I, that was that was nowhere in my mind. You know, as a little kid playing baseball, growing up, your dreams of being professional someday, and that one dream came true, of course, and uh, got to the big leagues on four different occasions with a few different teams. But even throughout my years, a lot of years in the minor leagues, I was I was a catcher, and you know, you hear so often that catchers would make good managers. Catchers would make good analysts because they seem to understand the game maybe a little bit of a different way because we're so close to the game and involved in every pitch and everything that goes on defensively and tactically. Yeah. So – uh, I, I was one of those guys. I think in the minor leagues, that I was almost that go-to guy on on a minor league team after the game when the, the local newspaper or radio needed an interview or some comments. They knew they could come to me because I would talk. I was a talker. I would I would give them how I felt uh, about the game, my comments, and uh, it was a bit of an ongoing joke with my teammates throughout the of many years and I'm sure a lot of them if they were look back now they would probably say you you're making a living doing it now which is just perfect for you so it's a good spot
0: now before the COVID situation I know I'm sure at least you got to see these guys on a daily basis what is it what what is it like working with um Buck Martinez who's a legend and Guy who does ESPN ultimately to, ultimately too will be and did he did he uh does your games broadcasting as well Dan Shulman, who also will be a legend in his own right broadcasting what's it what's it like working with those guys are they as as are they as cool as they seem like on TV together.
1: Yeah, and you know, before I even get into answering that, Byron, I have to add one more name, and it's Jerry Howarth. Jerry Howarth is a legendary radio voice for the Toronto Blue Jays for many, many years. And when I began my career, it was in the radio booth alongside Jerry. I worked four years with him. I forgot about him. And in terms of just coming into the business, you can't ask for a better mentor. And and I say mentor because he literally guided me along. I'd never done this before. Mm -hmm. And uh, he knew that I was aware and had some baseball insight from my days playing and that I could provide a lot of analysis. But he was teaching me every step of the way, you know, the broadcasting tricks of when to come in with your comment, when you need to wrap it up so that he could call the pitch, all of those sorts of things that can that make it make the broadcast dance a little bit, make it flow better. And. And my very first from my very first year, luckily for me, Sportsnet allowed me to fill in on the T V side. Buck Martinez had a partner at that time in the name Pat Tabler. They still work together. So when Tabby would take a vacation, a weekend off or whatever, I would fill in for three games. So I think I did ten or twelve games my first couple of years, which was great experience. But mentioned Buck's name. There's another guy that I couldn't ask for a better mentor because there were so many times that we're on that television broadcast or in our production meetings or or taping our opening before the show. And I might be once, twice, three times and I'm butchering my lines. We've got to retape, retape. And I'll never forget the one day when he finally looked at me, he stopped. He just looked right at me. He said, look in that screen and just pretend you're talking to your son about baseball. And it was almost like this huge weight came off my shoulders. I'll never forget the moment because I try to remember it all the time now. Sometimes, you know, you get on air and the lights go on and you get too formal. And I've continued to work in my career, broadcasting career now at that after eight years to, to get better in that regard. And I think we can always, all of us can get better a little bit each day. And so those are some of, the, some of the things that I try to continue to keep in the back of my mind. Jerry would help me with my grammar. He said, you know, it's not you're gonna do something. You're going to. do something you are going to going is not a word. And it's not uh there are there's there's two outs there are two outs and so he would correct me and and he always said that the reason he did those things is because he knew that i could handle it he knew that i i had started at a pretty high level for never doing it and that he felt that i could even go higher so i am forever grateful to to jerry and to buck and then uh, of course in working with tabby tabby and i are best buds down on the field during bp some days and then with dan Schulman and I, couple spring training games with Dan when he's filled in and he's doing more on our network here in Toronto. So I, I'm very fortunate to come into a business that really had no experience. <laughs> you know, I'll have little kids and kids from broadcasting school say, so, you know, where did you go to school? I, said, well, I didn't go to broadcasting school. I, I was a former player and I got thrown into this yeah, and uh, crazy. Yeah, yeah, crazy circumstances, and you just kind of learn as you go. But as I said, even from the very first day, I felt that I could talk baseball and analyze the game no problem. But it's a whole different ballgame when you're doing it on radio and then, of course, on TV now when things become a little bit more time-sensitive. So going back to the names you mentioned, forever grateful to have worked with those guys early on in my career
0: now as a player would you honestly that's more difficult than especially since you do it on tv that's more difficult than actually playing the game i know you're on tv playing the game and you know the cameras are there watching you plus you got to do interviews there as well is that is what you're doing now is that more difficult than being a player itself
1: yeah, it's learning a new skill for me is what it is now. I've been doing it for eight years, so I've got some experience. And I think anybody would agree with me that experience is a wonderful thing in life, no matter what we're doing, whether you're studying for exam whether you're working as a teacher or a plumber or an electrician, wherever you are, the more experience you get, the more comfortable you're going to be, the more comfortable you're going to be handling adversity. And in the sports broadcasting business, what that means is you're in the middle of your comments analyzing Vladimir Guerrero's swing and the producers in years saying, okay, you still have another minute. And when I thought we were wrapping it up in 20 seconds, so I'm going to stretch it out a little bit now. So those different things. So I would say as a player... You're doing something you love. You're doing something that you know you're good at. That's why you're doing it. Right. So there's a comfort zone there. And you're not really too, I'm not too, you know, worrying about cameras when you're playing baseball. You're so focused on the task at hand. So, in answer to your question, oh, absolutely. Broadcasting brings you all kinds of different challenges. But experience is a wonderful thing. And I think I'm in a very different spot right now than I was, of course, when I first started.
0: Now, before we jump into your career, I got to ask you. Uh, first we'll get into it with the division wise and then we'll get into it with your blue jays uh that the al east i know orioles are still rebuilding but hey they'll get there eventually they've got some good pieces of course you got the race who always seem to have a good team talent wise that, that front office always seems to find good players can't say the owner but at least they find good players then you got, of course, the Yankees and Red Sox who still buy their players, but although they've kind of prayed for that, this is a tough division, more more tougher than my NL West, I'd say, because I'm a yeah. great fan. I'd say that's more tougher than the uh, NL West. But what's it like being a part of that division? Because you pu- you played it when you were with the Blue Jays in your brief time there. How difficult is that division?
1: Yeah, I did play in toronto in the big leagues i was with the the tigers when i did play in the american league but i grew up i'm i'm right now in windsor ontario and that's right across the border from detroit so i grew up a Tigers fan from a very young age and now working in toronto it's about three and a half hours from where i am Mm. but the old tiger and blue jay rivalries were wonderful back in the 80s the old al east days but with the divisions changing the way they have until they change again, the Blue Jays are just in tough. I, I call it, the, it's a the beast of a division. It's the AL beast because Tampa has now entered it. And it used to be that you've got the Yankees and Red Sox every year. And all they are are two teams that have the ability to spend a lot of money. Right, right. Now, spending money does not mean you're going to win, but it right. sure helps. <laughs> and oh, those no. two teams are always going to be lurking around. If they do have a down year, it's probably not going to last too long. And I think with the Rays, they've just snuck up here over the last six, eight years where it's like, wow. So they're doing it on a low payroll. They've got a secret sauce there down there in St. Pete, and they're doing something that other teams just haven't quite figured out yet so you've got three very very good teams and that's how you get four teams winning 90 plus games in a division it was unbelievable this year and it's not going to get any easier because i could see those same four teams being very similar this coming season so let's hope we have baseball but i can see it again so no chance you're just you just got to keep battling and i know for the blue jay's sake you know what since mark shapiro came along and ross atkins is the general manager we have heard him say numerous times talk about competitive Advantages, And I'm sure it's a real lingo term in bi- in the business world and in baseball now, too. But you have to. You have to find every edge that you can get yeah. because you're already behind the eight ball paying out all these salaries and all of your expenses in U.S. dollars. And most of your revenues are in Canadian dollars. So you're already behind the currency exchange, eight ball. That's a tough one. And then, of course, there's recent times with the pandemic and you don't have fans in your stands. So it's been very, very difficult. We all just hope we get to some back to some sort of normalcy very, very soon. But even when they do, guess what? The AL East is still going to be the AL East. And when you play those teams that many times, it's just hard. You know, we talk about the Atlanta Braves and the way they won the World Series this past season. Yeah. And we we talked about it on our broadcast during the postseason. We cover the playoffs as well. It was right. a 500 team in August. It was right. a 500 yeah. team. Yeah, they were. Now, Exactly. And I'll be making this comment as we move forward this year. I wouldn't recommend that for the Blue Jays to have August roll around and be a 500 team because look what Atlanta did last year. Well, guess what? Atlanta wasn't playing the Yankees and the, and the Rays. They it doesn't work that way. So you just can't yeah. get that bit far behind in the AL East with, with the tough competition you have. Yeah, because
0: yeah, look at what the Nationals did too in that same division as the Braves. Look what they did two years ago. Had yep. a less than 500 record, I think, before the All Star break, and look what they want—they ended up winning the World Series that year.
1: You can beat up on a softer schedule when you're yeah. playing those types of teams, but the AL East, they when you play each team like 19 times, yeah, so you're 19. and usually down the stretch they match up the division, so you're going to see the Rays and the Yankees and the Red Sox in September a lot. So, if you're flirting around 500, you're in big trouble, especially with those other three. I call them heavyweights now because they all are.
0: So now the Blue Jays, they're the one team in baseball that I know has the most players that have had that ha- now have sons who have had former major leaguers play in the majors. You got Biggio, you got Bochette, you got Guerrero up now. I believe you guys have Co-9's kid in the organization still. And I think you have do you have a Clemens in the organization still or did he leave?
1: I don't think he's there anymore. That's a good question. I've been getting away from it in the off season here.
0: Now what my that leads me to my question with them. Do you see them ultimately winning and competing for an ALE's title, even though like we just said how difficult it is with the Rays and you see them winning that division?
1: You know, I, I certainly think they can do it. And they're right now probably on their, I would call it the, the winning curve because I think teams have that they don't necessarily want that. You know, I know we've heard the Blue Jays talk about it. they want to be competitive every single year. And they've done a lot of moving around and changing around and restructuring this organization over the last five plus years. And they are in a really good spot right now. They stuck into the playoffs last year in the pandemic season, the shortened season. This past season, they had a heartbreaker on the very final day of the season. And again, how can you knock a team winning 90 games? So they are more than knocking on the door. They are right there. That is for sure. They're in an excellent spot. And I think if we were to think back a few years ago when the Blue Jays were going through all of this, We were talking probably about 2022 and 2023 being the legitimate years where the Blue Jays should be not just contending for a postseason berth, but going deep into a postseason. I don't even really talk about winning the World Series because I think it's a lot of chance in October. A bunch of teams go to the playoffs, and the the hot team, you have a hot month, and you win. But you get to the postseason, one thing, but now do some damage and play deep into October. I think this team is there now, and I think 2022 is exactly – where it was earmarked because twenty-one would have been maybe a little optimistic and they had an excellent season. So it's all there. And I think with what they did too, tough tough when you lose an MVP candidate, Marcus Simeon, yeah. and a Cy Young winner, Robbie Ray. Right. Very difficult to replace that. Right. But the fact that they were able to extend Jose Barrios, I thought he was a fantastic deadline acquisition this oh, yes, year. And now he's guys. in the fold for yes. a long time. And I've always said, you know, I don't worry about the P word, prospects, because that's what they are. They're prospects. With Barrios, it's the known versus the unknown. And with Barrios, it's the known. This guy's got a track record. I think he's going to be a very, very good pitcher. Good number two on a bad day, maybe he's a three. Probably not a number one ace, but a very good pitcher. They added Gosman from San Francisco. We'll see about that. I mean, he had a good couple of years here over the latter part of his career, figuring something out, changing his pitch repertoire a little bit. We'll see how that translates in the AL East rather than in the National League. So those things are good. I don't think the Blue Jays are done yet. I do think they're still going to land a bat. I think it'll be hopefully a left-handed bat. Uh, I think the third base is the place I'm looking. It was real whole for them.
0: Yeah, You mentioned some that. of
1: those kids' names earlier. And I think when, when I talk about the, the kids and the family names you referred to, to me it's down to two. It's Vladdy and Bo, and for, quite frankly, it's their team. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and Bo Bichette are the faces of this franchise, and hopefully they will be for a long time. That's where they are early in their career. Because now what I really like about where they are and where the Blue Jays are These young players now have gained some experience. And we saw some invaluable experience last year. And the invaluable experience, not just the ups and downs, but playing 162. And you could see these guys. They were tiring down the stretch. It's the first time they had really done it. And I remember talking to Bo. It was right the last weekend of the season, I think. And he was jogging out onto the field. And I just kind of took it. Hey, how you doing today, Bo? And he stopped in his tracks. And he came over. And he's like, honestly i'm gassed (laughs) he was he was just being honest and i said you know you've played long seasons in the minor leagues you've gone to the postseason he said yeah but Joe, you know the postseason those things are like you don't even want to be in the postseason i remember those days you'd rather be gone home yeah so these guys got this invaluable experience that playing deep into a season can benefit them now so now if it's 2022 and september's to roll around they've been there and done it and i think that's going to help a lot
0: do you think the problem though has been pitching that you guys still need that you still need that pitching? Do you still need that to get it cuz you got hitting down Pat like you said with Guerrero.
1: I always think she- you need pitching. Bichette, I mean Biggio. Yeah, I always think you need pitching. The the lineup uh, is very good. Uh, they do have to fill a big void in Simeon, and yeah. I'm sure they'll address that. But they've got, uh, you know, don't forget George Springer didn't play a whole lot last year. No, and no, he was man, hurt, if, yeah. He was if hurt. he can stay, healthy, he can play 135, 40 games, that would be, wow. That would be very, very big for their offense. Need
0: bullpen more than starter, though, by far. Yeah,
1: you know, it was a funny season in that regard. And when you look back at the Blue Jays' season, you know, the bullpen actually did pretty well early on. They were carrying the day a they little were, bit, yes. but then... Man, they were just called upon too much. And when you're calling upon guys early like that. And the other thing is they went into last season with a lot of question marks. You know, they went out and signed like uh, guys like Kirby Yates and Tyler Chatwood, some of these guys, uh, David Phelps, guys that were coming off either injury or kind of subpar performance or 50-50 type performance, kind of question marks. And wouldn't you know it, like Chatwood started out great, but then he absolutely lost it and was no good. David Phelps was good, but got hurt. But even still, would he have been great all year? Hard to say. Yeah. So, And and Kirby Yates never threw a pitch for the Blue Jays. So it's just those are the things that hurt. And that's where I think this year, too, now, when you look at what Jordan Romano did, what Tim Mesa did in those high leverage innings late in ball games, So that experience, again, now they're going to be kind of, I don't know if you call them veterans just yet, but they've got a lot of experience now pitching in high leverage And that's wonderful. And the others you can fill up, but you've got some pretty good arms down there that you can count on. And I think what the Blue Jays finally did was they acquired a couple, I call them Major League Relief Pitchers, in Adam Simber and Trevor Richards. They helped immensely. Are they superstars? Absolutely not. But they really patched a lot of leaky holes. Uh, Was it in time? Maybe not. But it's hard to go out and trade for a reliever in May because no teams are really out of it yet. Right. It's, it's yeah. really difficult to do much early right. when they really needed help. So they kind of had to live with it. They finally got two guys that really provided some stable, stable relief. And that was great. Hopefully they can be the same. We know how fickle bullpens are. You just don't know. You just don't know how these guys are going to be. Relievers are like that. And that's why I'm I'm more adamant about the rotation. And that's why I think by acquiring Gosman and having Barrios, that's, hopefully a good one to punch Alec Manoa if he can build on what he did as a youngster last year that would be great so that's three Hinjin Ryu yeah. age catching up to him I, you know that could be could be getting deep in a career there so I'm not yeah. sure what you're going to get there right but then you know you you hope maybe Nate Pearson could find something where he can make some starts and make some quality starts I still want to explore him as a starting pitcher before we just pass him down and turn him into a major league reliever but time will tell we'll see and we've got to keep an eye he hasn't hasn't pitched a ton in his career because of injuries so i still think they would go get another arm for the rotation i'm hoping that happens and maybe even another relief arm or two because you know once you once you get somebody hurt or on the il and you've got to go down to the farm now you're getting into that you know that anthony Kay, is he coming up thomas hatch those kinds of guys to make starts and sometimes they're okay and nobody's deep five in the rotation and six and seven and eight it's hard but the better and deeper you can get you can survive those deep runs especially in those dog days of summer
0: now it comes down to i think also manager too do you think your manager has what it takes to lead a team into the World, into the world Series? you Because he's still newly himself as a manager. Do you think he has what it takes to get them to the World Series?
1: You know, I feel about managers and this was Charlie's first big league managing job with some great experience down in Tampa and what better place to get experience than with the Rays. So right. he right. certainly brings a lot of knowledge and insight from down there. I think, excuse me, what I, I, I've always felt about managers, and I would never say managers don't matter, but I really believe it's this is a, a game among thirty general managers because Charlie is going to be as good as the roster that Ross Atkins provides him with, quite mm-hmm. frankly. And it's the old term: anyone who can drive a Cadillac, you give me a bunch of hitters like they had this year that can hit. Now, do you have to pick your spots to give guys days off? Do you have to communicate well with them? <clears throat> Excuse me. Absolutely. That's how you manage. You're managing people. You're managing personalities. But can Charlie do anything about what happened to their bullpen last year? No, no. Oh, with all those injuries, and you got not only did they have guys coming up from the minor leagues that probably shouldn't have been in the major leagues in the bullpen, they shouldn't have been pitching high leverage in the bullpen. And that's that's the situation he ended up finding himself in. So, uh, to me, when you look at the manager in that season last year, and of course, hey, the the most subject, subjective decision I think any coach or manager in any professional sport can make. Our bullpen changes <laughs> so yeah, we can we can tear those to pieces day in and day out and i've always said the right decision is the one that works at the end of the day so it's hard i think with with charlie you know he's he's probably gaining experience as he goes as well but Man, you give them give him Romano and Meza as good as they were last year. Give him Simber and Richards. If they can be solid middle guys, they added Yimmy Garcia. How about that lineup? What if they were to acquire a, a Jose Ramirez from Cleveland to pay third base? I mean, hey, those things would make me look like a pretty good manager too. That's so That's you true. do have to steer the ship. So in answer to your question, yeah, I think he can do it. Because you just need to put the pieces in place, and then what he does is he has to guide the ship and steer the ship over a six-month season, and hopefully in October.
0: Now, let's talk about one of your former teams that you played for, the Expos. Now, they obviously went to Washington because the fans weren't there, there wasn't revenue, so they moved, hiked their tail all the way to Washington. Now, there's a lot of talk that the Rays want to do split city. I think it's bogus and BS, but Montreal obviously wants a team again. I don't know why. Do you see that happening again with them getting a team that you used to play for?
1: I don't like the two-city idea at all. Uh, much like you just mentioned there, I, when I first heard of it, I thought it was almost just gimmicky. I thought maybe it was a political move down in Florida to say, "Hey, put the heat on the governments, build us a stadium, or remove," and all this kind of stuff. I can't imagine. I know it's probably got to go through the players' association. I, I, I can't see them. I mean, you know what the Blue Jays went through this year? They had spring training in Dunedin, Florida. They started their home games, their season in, in Dunedin, Dunedin, Florida. Yep. They then went to Buffalo for their home games. And then from Buffalo, after a couple months, they ended up in Toronto. I mean, just put yourself in the shoes of some of those players that, especially the ones that do have families, young kids with them, maybe wives and kids and and all of that moving. And I mean, I just can't imagine as a player, with all that you have on your plate in the first place, running through a major league schedule over six months and 162 games, to add that where you're going to play the first half of your season in this city. Then we're going to move here to play the second half. That I don't know. It just seems kind of crazy. Do I think baseball is ever going to return to Montreal? I certainly think it could, and the reason I think it could is because you we were seeing year after year a couple of cities in Tampa and Oakland that seem to have trouble keeping their team that's not even talking yet about expansion. So yeah. if, if anybody's going to get a team, now we know that the almighty dollar speaks volumes. And I don't know, I, I've heard billion dollars, is that going to cost now to acquire a franchise? And to, you know, you're talking about building a downtown stadium. I mean, there's lots going on there. I don't know the financial situation of the Montreal project. Um, I, would I love to see it? Absolutely. I'm a former ex who I'd love to see my baseball back in Montreal. It's just very difficult, like we've seen in other sports where cities have lost teams, and then they come back and ask again. So you better have your ducks in a row and everything lined up if you're going to be in that game.
0: Now, you obviously played catcher, which I think is, right, which is one of the toughest positions in baseball besides pitcher. Uh, how tough actually is it for people that don't know? How tough is it to play your position?
1: Well, I could go a lot of places with that one, Byron. It's, it's physically demanding, I will say that. But, you know... The higher you get up the levels that you go from the minor leagues, and once you get to the major leagues, it becomes mentally grinding too. Because you're essentially the the backup pitching coach. You've, you're the team psychologist because you've got 13 different pitchers on your staff that you have to know their makeup, who they are, wh- what makes them tick. You know, not to mention their their best pitch, their second best pitch, their third best pitch. Because my golden rule is never get beat with your third best pitch at a critical time in the ball game. But when I say psychologist, it's because you need to know how to handle the guy back there because when you go out to the mound and talk to him, if, if you're a guy that is motivated by me getting in your face and yelling at you and getting in you, then that's what I'll do because I know it works for you. Mm-hmm. So that means, hey, let's go get that curveball down, bury that thing, get it down in the zone. Let's get this guy right here. I can do that with some guys. Other guys are motivated that way and they actually might kind of crater a little bit. It doesn't work for them. So I have to know that guy too. And that's the guy who might go out there and say, hey, hey, despite those last few hits, they're hitting the ball hard, but they're making some good pitches. You're right there. Let's go. We're one pitch from getting out of this. See the different approaches? Two very different approaches, and it's not one good, one bad. It's knowing your pitchers, and I think that's the most important thing as a catcher. I was fortunate coming up with the Expos in the minor leagues. Rick Williams was our pitching coordinator in the minor leagues, son of Dick Williams and i can't thank him enough he's he was my i would say mentor in the minor leagues as a catcher now he was a pitching coordinator thinking what's the connection well catching catchers spend a lot of time with a pitching coordinator because i remember being whether it was in spring training or a lot of instruction leagues we spent and we play instruction league games and in terms of calling a game you know we didn't wear wristbands back then we it was all right here you had to know the hitter know your pitcher strengths and weaknesses of both how you're going to attack your, that hitter, thinking one and two and three pitches ahead of time. How you're going to sequence things. And when we came to the dugout after the inning, he might I might sit down on the desk on the dugout right next to him. He'll say, "Why the one one changeup to that mm-hmm. second hitter? Mm-hmm. What were you thinking?" And you better have an answer. So that's how I learned how to call a game. So I would have to give him that answer. I would say, well, we had just come fastball in. I thought we'd go down and away with a changeup. And then I'd go a step further and say, if we missed and he laid off and he went to two and one, I was going to go back sink or two-seam fastball away. If we got him to chase, I was going to come up and in again. Or have that reasoning for not just the previous pitch, that pitch, and where you're going next. So those are the things he taught me in terms of calling the game. So you learn that coming up through the minor leagues and by the time I got to the major leagues now it was just all about learning the scouting reports of the hitters, going over with my pitching coach what the strengths and weaknesses are, but now you can do that and work with each and every pitcher. So <coughs> excuse me, mentally? That's the most important part of the ball game I think behind the plate because and for me I was I wasn't a guy that hit much and my strength was defense and that's why I got to the big leagues four different times. So I had to make sure I maintained that As my strength. Physically, it's, of course, it's physically demanding. You're crouching 300 times, 200 times a night. You know, it's, that's just the way it is. And spring trainings are brutal because you're catching bullpens all day. You're catching five and six guys in the bullpen. And batting practice is usually at the end of the day if they have time for you. I'm sure things have changed a little bit, but physically and mentally, it it can be draining. And I'm sure there's a reason why, uh, you know, some catchers don't quite finish at their position in terms of their ends of their careers.
0: So your time in the majors when you were catching. Uh, did you have any difficulty with any pitchers you caught for? Uh, you caught for? Did they did they shove off pitches or how how were they or or who gave you hassles as a catcher?
1: That's kind of, a great question. Yeah. Um, you know, when, as soon as you asked started asking that question, something came to my mind. So I would say, first of all, overall, that was kind of the strength of my game. So I I gained the trust of pitchers rather easily, and I think even when I got called up to the big leagues from AAA wherever I was and whether it was with the Expos or Tigers or Marlins, I um, they knew why I was called up. I was called up because I can do a good job behind the plate. That's why I was there. So that part of it wasn't a real problem. Now, I do have a funny story. We were playing 1993. I was called up at the Expos. And we were playing at Wrigley Field in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And I got to start an afternoon game, and Dennis Martinez was pitching, old Dennis Martinez. And he was a guy that, we go over our game plan, and he wanted you to set up way off the plate. So let's say it's a right-handed hitter. He wanted me, like, here's the plate. He wanted you, like, over here, like, way over, like, almost off the plate. <clears throat> then he, the reason he wanted that is because he didn't want to miss on the plate. So he was adamant about that, too, really wanted you to move. Well, I was doing that in the game, and the umpire's, like, nudging me back there, saying, hey, get back over here. You're going way too far. Like, I'm almost out of the box there. <laughs> and I said, hey, that's the way he likes me to set up just do what I'm told, you know, working with my, my big guy out there. And he would get it. The umpire got a chuckle and all, but after the game, and the funnier story, my family was in town. We went out to Harry Carey's restaurant. Well, Harry was there. So I thought I got to go meet Harry Carey. Right, so I right. walked up to him, told him who I was. Oh, Joe. He said, you know, so it's like, I got a question for you. <laughs> he said, And he asked me that question. He said, why the heck you're setting up so far off the plate with Martinez pitching there? looked like the umpire wanted you to pull you back in. He literally asked me why. So I don't know if he made a comment during his broadcast about it, but that that was the reason. Dennis wanted you over here because if he was going to miss, he wanted to miss on the corner. He didn't want to miss on the half or middle of the plate. So funny story. Everybody's different. But the, um, And the other one, I think, when I was called up in the Marlins in 96, two big arms, uh, Kevin Brown and Al Leiter.
0: Oh, yeah, those two. And, uh, yes. I uh, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, caught both of them. And, no. um, and those two names strike me because I think Kevin Brown could have won the Cy Young that year. It was just, unfortunately, oh, yeah. we're, a, ba- we're he, a bad team. He but was. he had a heavy, heavy sinking ball, and he would he was a bulldog. Come right at you. And then Al Leiter, he was that lefty. He threw a cutter. He threw a lefty cutter in on righties, and he just threw it whenever he wanted. All He would throw it 3-0 and jam right-handed hitters. It was unbelievable how he did it, but it just – that's how late – and how much it moved, and he would—it was embarrassing to hitters almost because three oh three one, he would jam them. Even though when they knew it was coming and trying to get the bad head out. Those so those two, were two those pretty two, good guys.
0: Those two could have both been Cy Young that year. They had yeah.
1: Stuff. <laughs> yes. No. They were. They were good. Kevin Brown for sure. I think um, after look back, was it Smoltz? Maybe that won it that year. Or?
0: Yes, Smoltz. I believe won it that year, and then I forget who won it the following year because. They uh they both also pitched well, too, their World Series year of 97. Right. That So that was when the Marlins first won the World Series, and everybody knew about the Marlins. Yes. Other than that, I mean, nobody knew. Nobody knew who they were because nobody projected them to win anything that year. Just like they didn't project you guys when you were with them to win in 96. Yeah, And they didn't really do nothing, but... Do it, yeah. Yeah, so
1: I, I, I feel, yeah, I think
0: they should have won they should have won but then again when, you, when it comes to voting like that it's biased it's whoever's winning the team is yeah winning. it's not it's not right do, do, do i think the voting's fair no it should yeah. be fair right don't you agree no matter what well, he, you had, matter a, winning he, he had a or
1: not. fantastic individual year um What's the Cy Young? It's the best pitcher. So if you let, exactly. look at it like that, yeah. Now, I would, we had that argument this year in Toronto with the whole MVP race when Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is going at right. it You know, right. in the Otani debate. Yes. And, you know, at the time, say, with a month left in the season, my beef was that the most valuable player is, to me, that, that middle word is everything. To me, exactly. valuable
0: exactly.
1: means valuable to your team winning exactly. and getting to the postseason. Yep. And that's not Otani's fault, just like it wasn't Mike Trout's fault. Fault in the yeah. past, yeah. but I do think that's what valuable means. If not, change the award to outstanding player or best player or whatever. Yeah, but most valuable player to me, you've got to get, help get your team in the postseason because that's what value is—you're winning. Yeah,
0: You're true, true. You're right on that. So, like you said, you make your it's de- a good argument. You make your debut in '93 for the Expos. Now, you were you were an undrafted. You signed as a free agent, undrafted free agent. Now, tell us about that. Like, Did you know you weren't going to be drafted at all? Who scouted you, and how did you know you were going to get signed by the Expos?
1: I didn't. (laughs) So I was actually just signed as an amateur free agent because I'm Canadian. So this is back in 1988. This is before Canadians had to go into the draft. I think Mm -hmm. that started a few years later. I was playing high school football, and out on my football field – no no idea this was going to happen either my football coach catched me after practice one day this is as my senior year in high school and he said what would you think of uh going over to school in the u.s to play football mm-hmm. and i'm saying i said like what are you talking about like i didn't know what he was talking about my plans were probably go to the university of windsor which is at home here in my hometown and play football there Yeah, because i was a quarterback and he said well there's a team over at in central michigan central michigan university chippewas so but two and a half hours away, and they're willing to offer you a football scholarship. And I'm thinking, what are you talking about? Apparently, somebody saw some film and whatever happened that they were really interested. Saw me play. So push comes to shove, they come over. Long story short, they offer me a full ride football scholarship. So I went to Central Michigan University as a quarterback to play football out of high school. Mm-hmm. So that's the wow. irony. I went there, there one know. year as redshirted as a freshman quarterback. In the spring, I played in them. We called it the maroon and gold game. I quarterbacked one team because the quarterback the previous year was graduating. He was a senior. Mm -hmm. So it was going to be between me and another guy that was a year older than me. I was a redshirt freshman. He was going to be a redshirt sophomore, I think. So we were duking it out to probably for the starting spot. Well, I am come home in the summertime playing baseball with my team in in Windsor here where I live for the summer. And I get a call one day from a local expo, Scout Montreal Expos. They were having a camp locally and said you know a couple day camp bring a couple buddies we'd like you to come out And I'm thinking yeah sure you know something to do during the day well apparently I had a good couple days and he offered me a professional baseball contract nice. now I'm thinking I'm thinking well what, what does this mean like I'm, I'm going back this was the end of July I'm going back to school in two weeks for two a day football practices and classes are starting up like how does this work and the guys on the phone say oh no you know we maybe we want to take you out with your parents and maybe explain how this works well of course, they explained how it worked. It means you would be leaving school and, and embarking on a professional it, baseball career. It worked well for you. <laughs> nice problem to have. You're right. But I look back now and I'm like, wow, how do you make that decision? I mean, i am registered as a quarterback, turns into a five-year scholarship, and I have my entire education taken care of, and who knows where football goes, and maybe get a chance to play baseball at college as well. But long story short, once again, was talked to a few people, talked to my parents, and I decided to sign the professional baseball contract probably more than anything, because I felt like it was just one of those once in a lifetime opportunities. Like I didn't know if I'd get this opportunity again. And I've always loved baseball. And I uh, just thought with, with the football and the school, it's like school, something that will always be there. If I want to go back and finish my degree one day, that'll be there. And thankfully I did after 13 year baseball career. So, I made the decision, but of course, now I got to call the school and tell them. So I called, I talked to the uh, my positions coach, and I told him what had happened. Went to this camp and offered it. And again, I didn't call to ask them their opinion. I called them to tell them I made my decision. So I'm on the phone with my positions coach. Well, it was 15, 20 minutes of him telling me what a mistake I was making and how, you know, the chances of getting your college education are slim and none, and chance of making it professionally in baseball, the chances are slim and none, and all And I was like, wow, I'm on the other end of the phone going, my guy's like 19 years old. And he puts me on, transfers me to the head coach. Same thing for another 15, 20 minutes. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm just sweating bullets right now. And I'm just, my phone's like this. And I'm like, I was upstairs in like my parents' bedroom on their phone. I felt like, what am I going to do? Somebody rescue me. He puts me on the phone with the athletic director of the university. So now, same story. And, and again, I respected what they were all saying, especially looking back now. And I can understand totally. I mean, I was bailing on them. It was horrible. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the part that bothered me most for me was I, I felt so guilty because I really felt that I was being selfish and letting people down. And what a horrible feeling because I didn't, didn't think that was me. That's not my makeup. That's not who I am. But really, that's what I was doing. Two weeks before I was going back to be a potential quarterback, I was leaving the program. Yeah, And I just, I felt that was the worst part of it. And I still to this day, when I think back, it's like, wow, what I've had a lot of people ask me, would you do it again? Do you regret what you did? And I always say, like, I don't regret what I did at all because I, I really, I was selfish, but I did what I thought was best for me and my future. But if I had to do it again, then I'd probably stay in school and hope to you know continue playing football and hope to have a chance to play baseball, too, because I took quite a gamble. I took quite I a gamble. Did. It is very hard. Right. Yes, I got to the major leagues four different times but it's not like i had a 10-year baseball career at the major leagues right but here we are today if i stay in school who knows this would have never happened i wouldn't be a major league baseball broadcaster so funny how life works and funny how going backwards and maybe revisiting some of that how my life i mean my life totally took it it went down a different road and it really it changed my life
0: now like you said you debuted in 93 that was your first game (laughs) Take us through that day and experience. Uh, was your family there? Did, uh, did you get to get a hit? Take us through that day and experience. And who told you when you first got that you were going to get called up? Who called? Uh,
1: another funny story. So I'm in Triple A Ottawa with the Montreal Expos. Ottawa is just outside, about two hours from Montreal. That's where the Triple A club was, and we were playing at home that night. Mm -hmm. and I wasn't even playing at the time full time I was kind of back up not doing much that night I was catching in the bullpen Mm -hmm. we lost a game late I don't know if it was in the extra innings or what but Came in the clubhouse after the game. You had to walk up a long tunnel to get to the clubhouse. And I remember walking to my locker. But then the manager's office was, he had to walk through our clubhouse also. And then around the corner was his office. Well, my manager was Mike Quaddy. That name might ring a bell. Managed in the big leagues a bit for the Cubs, I think. I remember. Coached in the big leagues. Yeah, Yeah, Mike Quaddy. And I had him throughout the minor leagues. So several of us on the team knew him very well. Had him a lot in the minor leagues. Well, we joked that he had a uh, – Q had a bit of a reputation of – we called it a mood ring where he'd be higher than a kite and all happy one minute. Next minute, he is just like ready to tear somebody apart. So he always had to kind of tread lightly around Q. So I'm sitting at my locker after this tough loss that I didn't even play in. I, what possibly could I have done wrong, right? right? He comes up through the clubhouse, and as he's going through the clubhouse on his way to his office, he looks right at me and he goes like this, come like this, come here. And I I was deer in headlights I think I was like oh shit what did I do now like I didn't even play tonight right so I kind of get up and tail between my legs and walk over around the corner into his office and right behind me was Gil Heredia Gil had pitched in the big leagues a little bit I think with Montreal at the time already so Gil and I are going to the office and Quaddie's we sit down and Quaddie's sitting uh, leans back in his chair and he puts his feet up like this and he said you guys are going to the big leagues and I, I, I looked at him and see, like, I think I said, like, yeah, right. You're joking, right? And he looked at me, kind of raised his eyebrows like that. And he said, I'm serious. And I, I just, oh, Byron, my body went numb. I think I was just, I mean, this is why you play the game in the minor leagues for so many years, right? right? You're, yeah. you're always, how many times in the minors as guys, we would talk as teammates and we always talked about yeah. if that call ever came and what it'd be like and, there it was. I was living it. And it was just, I, there was a tingling sensation through my body like, oh my God. Now, right away, the first thing I thought was, first of all, how my God, I, I don't even think I was hitting much. I told you I wasn't much of a hitter, but I'm thinking, what's the situation in Montreal that yeah. they want, obviously, a catcher that can play defense? Because that's what I was. Well, right, right, Felipe, right. Felipe Lou was the manager in Montreal. This is 1993. 1990 in the Florida State League in West Palm Beach, Florida, Felipe was my manager. And I caught a lot that year. There you go. And Felipe loved me behind the plate as a defensive catcher. Right. and i talked about before kind of being right. run the game being yeah. that extra manager out there so right away my wheels are spinning saying oh felipe might want a third catcher up there like he's there's something you know, and i just thought wow so he said you're going to pittsburgh tomorrow so my wife was there i think my brother and his wife were there in the family room so i went to share it with them and we were just in tears and uh, we are on like a 6 a.m flight out of ottawa my wife and i to um, to pittsburgh and we we're at uh Three Rivers Stadium. It was it was unbelievable. We had our one daughter was with us. She was 2 mm-hmm. or 1. No, she was 1. And um opened up at Three Rivers Stadium and a lot of the guys had said with Felipe, when you get called up, be ready because he doesn't usually waste too much time. He tries to get you in there. So I was like, okay, I'll be ready. Well, sure enough, it wasn't the first day. I don't think I'd have to look back I think it was the second. But not only do I get thrown in the game, I get thrown into a tie game in the ninth, I think it was, whether it was a double switch or something. So I think Jeff Shaw was pitching, and then Tim Scott came in. We ended up losing. It didn't end well, but very memorable to say the least. And I felt good about it because it was was great that my manager, of course, your first big league call-up, had that kind of confidence in you to put you back there behind the plate in such a tight game. And and I knew Felipe had that confidence in me. Now
0: let's unfortunately talk about your final game in the majors – Did you honestly know it was going to be your final game in the majors, or did you want to try playing again in the majors? I know your last team was with the Red Sox and the minors. Yeah. And that's all you made it to. But did you you think it was going to be your final game in the majors?
1: No, it was uh, 1998. I had actually became a minor league free agent before the 98 season, and I had jokingly said to my agent when I was a minor league free agent, I said, um, we were, I was going out to, he was debating on, you know, calling teams and seeing if there was going to be any interest. And I had heard on a sports update, we get the Detroit radio stations here in Windsor. And I heard on a sports update that the Tigers had just traded their catcher. I don't know if it was Matt Walbeck or whatever it was, they had traded their catcher. And I just, my wheels started spinning thinking you know i'm gonna kind of get late in my career here i wonder if the tigers would want a veteran kind of guy in triple a <laughs> never know you know yeah so i got home and i called my agent and i told him that story i said hey, why don't you inquire about the tigers see what they say he's like sure whatever you want i said well this just happened i just heard about this trade you know maybe they're looking for some depth whatever mm-hmm. and uh, he said sure well no sooner he calls me back the next morning and he said do you want to be a tiger and i said are you kidding me so I did so I was up in nineteen ninety-eight with the Tigers, and of course getting back to my last major league game would have been with the Tigers in Toronto. How ironic is that? As a Tiger yeah, in Toronto <laughs> late September of ninety-eight. I signed back with them in ninety-nine. I was in Toledo the whole season. And that's when I was thinking about probably retiring and, and moving on you. Know, my wife and I now had we were having our we just had our fourth child so we were we we're busy and she and we're working here and you know i was that type of player i mean i could have kept playing probably for a long time but how much did i want to be away and do back and forth right so it just got to a point where it's like you know what if i'm a minor league for Asia, if somebody calls i'll entertain it maybe i'll try one more year but if not i'm not going to pursue anything well sure enough the first day as a minor league free agent this isn't going into spring of 2000 now was the Boston Red Sox because a lot of their executives and brass were same people from, uh, what the word Montreal back in my day. So I got a call from Kent Qualls. He was their minor league coordinator at the time. So I signed with the Red Sox, went to big league camp with Boston in 2000, went to AAA Pawtucket. Um, I was there playing part-time with another Tim Spear, another veteran catcher. The irony of that though, was I had thought my wife and I had been talking. It was like first of June. We'd been talking for about a week about maybe this is it. It was far away, you know. Here she is with four kids at home, and I'm playing part time in AAA. It's just what do we like? Even a, a call up to Boston now is not sounding too intriguing in September. So it's like maybe you know that's when you know that when you hear athletes say maybe that fire is is going out. So we had talked about. It. So I made the decision. Go to the ballpark. I don't know what the day exact day, but it's first week of June. Go to the ballpark that day in Pawtucket. And I'm going there to speak to Gary Jones, my manager, to tell him I'm done. I'm retiring. I'm going, taking it to the house. I'm going home. And I get to the ballpark, and I got there early, too, on purpose. But the lineup was already posted while I'm in the lineup. So I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to play the game, my last game, and I'll go in right after the game and, and tell him. Well, if you remember the name Tomo Oka in the big leagues a few different times. Thank you. Thank you. I catch the game, Tomo pitches a perfect game. So I caught a perfect game. So now it's like, now what am I supposed to do? Right? I'm not going to go into the office and tell the manager himself everybody's celebrating. The guy threw a perfect game and everybody's just elated in the clubhouse. Everybody's partying. And I didn't, the last thing I want to do is rain on that parade, right? So yeah. I waited till the next day, early in the afternoon, came in and told my manager that that was it my plan was to do it yesterday but so talk about what a way to go out yes i, I caught a perfect game my last professional game of my career it wasn't by design just the way it kind of worked out
0: now like you said unfortunately you weren't known for your hitting like you said um and unfortunately his stats show that but out of the, <laughs> out of the pictures you faced though i i i know there had to be a pitcher that you did not like facing that had filthy stuff
1: yeah, who I mentioned that, that who, last.
0: Who was that pitcher?
1: Well, if you want one name, my very last weekend—it might have been my last game—I have to go back to the old box scores. But that final weekend that I played for Detroit in '98 in Toronto, I faced Roger Clemens.
0: Woohoo! Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. So that was—it was a Cy Young year. Maybe it's back-to-back Cy Young years. Yeah, he was nasty. He was throwing 98, 99 with that splitter. He was filthy. Yeah, and I mean, for a guy that's struggling to hit in the first place, I was just trying to survive up there. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. And you, you, you obviously were. You obviously, I mean, you were a starter. I mean, you weren't. You, you weren't really a backup, were you at all? I don't think you were technically, were you?
1: Well, when I got to the big leagues a couple times, you know, when I first got called up in the Expos, I was kind of that third catcher where Felipe wanted because he would do the double switches in the National right, League game and right. all. But there were times when I got called up with Florida with the Marlins at that time they were in the Florida Marlins, and in '96 and then in '98 with Detroit, I played a fair bit because the other guys were hurt. So I got pretty lucky. I was, I was fortunate to kind of play a fair bit for the time I was there. The Marlins, I was there for a shorter time. But for Detroit, I was up. Um, Raul Casanova, the catcher, pulled a hamstring. I thought I was just going to be up for a couple of weeks. And I remember walking out of the bullpen. We were in Baltimore, walking from the bullpen after a game. And we we're going to fly back, I think, get on the plane. And he was due to come off the injured list. And I thought, for sure, I'm going back down to AAA. So I thought I was just done. Well, As we're walking back, somebody says, did you hear what happened to Casanova? I think he got hit by a pitch and broke his wrist or something. He's going to be done for the year. And I kind of went, oh, like, you never wish anything bad on my people. But that turned out to be, I think, the reason I ended up staying in Detroit the rest of the season. So I got a fair bit of playing time, yes.
0: So now a couple couple more questions before I let you go. I know we went a little bit over, but I just got a couple more that I got to ask you, and then we'll be done. All and right. The first one is um, – the ballparks that you played in, I know they were mainly football stadiums, like you said, like Three River, Pittsburgh, where you were in. I, you can kind of say your Expos one was because that was kind of like a football stadium. I don't care what anybody says, that was turf. Um, Houston Astrodome, all those, all those domes, and then uh, other football ones. Would you? How difficult would you say it was playing on those? Because I know it had to be difficult, especially as a catcher. It had to be difficult.
1: You know, I'm going to turn it turn it around on you, Byron, and I would say actually did not impact me as a catcher as much because as a catcher you're on the dirt behind home plate ninety percent of the time, right? Yeah, yeah. So it yeah, it was actually for me, it didn't really matter a whole lot. In fact, I like playing on turf because I thought the turf was faster and I might have a chance for a ground ball to get through a hole for a base hit. But most of the infielders, especially in Montreal, it was not good turf. And that just wasn't good. And we we know the horror stories we hear of Andre Dawson and those guys. Like, yeah, it just was not very good. It was very hard. And we know now that the technology has made turf a lot softer, a lot more durable. And uh, like in Toronto, there's some very nice turf. Guys don't complain too much about it at all. But yeah, honestly, in terms of being a catcher, it didn't impact me a whole lot because I'm back there doing my thing on the dirt.
0: And now, final question before I let you go is, do you honestly think there'll be a season this year, and when do you think they'll actually start playing?
1: Oh, man, you got another hour? <laughs> you know, the I, I, I do think there'll be a season. Um, the bigger question is when that starts. I think... Anytime we get into the early part of February, now you're starting to worry about a delay to spring. The start of spring training. And anytime we start talking about a delay to start a spring training, you're getting possibly into a delay to the start of the season. Now we know deadlines are deadlines for a reason. Mm-hmm. And we also know that once the season starts, that's when everybody makes their money. That's when the owners make their money. That's when the players make their money. So that, to me, is the true deadline. But as we know, I mean, spring training for years is probably a little bit long. But you don't want to get into that. It's like last year with the pandemic season, right, and everybody's out. And then it turns into almost like CBA talks. And they finally imposed the 60-game schedule. And guys are scrambling again. And, yeah. and we know that pitchers may not have trained properly. And the last thing you want to do is get into all that. And, and now with the lockout, guys can't be working out. You're done, Dunedin. Guys can't be working out the facility. And that's criminal to me. I mean, that's just too bad. That's so unfortunate. The Blue Jays have built a facility like that to train year-round in. And their players can't be there right now. So, you know, you hope they're all getting their work in. And I'm sure they are. But it's just not going to be the same quality work so you start worrying about pitchers and their workloads and how do they build up from the start of the season so in answer i do believe that that deadline is a deadline for a reason and i cannot imagine that these two sides are not going to figure this out before they cost themselves some games unfortunately in saying that it's not a great relationship as we know over a number of years but i sure hope they can get their acts together enough to whether Even if spring training is delayed a bit To start that season on time
0: Now you were obviously in the minors during the first strike What was going through your head when that happened As a player Because oh. I know you hated it too as a player Even though it you was, were in the minors yeah.
1: It was horrible because when the strike hit In 94 I was in AAA hoping to get called up At the Expos And be part of maybe a World Series team Because they're the best team in baseball 95 spring training rolled around And the strike was still prevalent And we as minor leaguers had to report to camp. And I remember being at minor league camp, and they actually, they tried to will us into going over and be replacement players. And they were baiting you with money, you know, it was five grand to go over, five more grand if you made the team. And it wasn't major league baseball. It was ridiculous. But the same time I'm a minor leaguer and you know I just played in the major league so I, I wasn't on the roster anymore but I certainly get what it's what it means to be part of that union and and the benefits that you reap from being part of that union so I wasn't going to cross I didn't want to do that and I certainly hoped to play in the big leagues again and I didn't want to be blackballed but I thought it was awful what the teams asked of you to try to be replacement players but I also remember being very frustrated because we were in the minor league hotel and that's when the the players would come over and I mean big league players from the the big league clubs like john franco and bobby bonilla and tom glam and they would come they were the reps that would come and talk to us yeah and i mean you know i was so frustrated because here we are watching these guys up there talk making their millions of dollars telling us what to do and what not to do now i knew why they were telling us that because i had that taste of the major leagues but at the same time it, it was really frustrating because I didn't really want to – I didn't want to be a replacement player and be part of that because I knew it wasn't Major League Baseball. Those were not Major Leaguers, right? Yeah. So if that was going to go, it was going to be with a bunch of guys. You know, Maybe some Minor Leaguers would cross, but it would be just a bunch of people that aren't necessarily even professional baseball players. And my, my turning point for me, was in camp one day, and once again, Felipe Alou's name comes to mind because – talk about a mentor and he guided me through this too because I remember speaking to him at the minor league complex the one day and I said Felipe what do you think like they want us to do this I don't want to do it I don't want to be any part of it and he said let me tell you something this stuff's not going to last forever and when it's over you want to go play in the major leagues and he said just like anything nothing's lasting forever this it's going to pass basically wait it out and do what you know you think is right and i said skip thanks so much i just needed to hear that i needed that confirmation to say you're, you're thinking along the right lines you're doing the right thing stick to your guns and that's what i did waited till the mess was over went to triple a and ended up getting called back up in september uh, and 95 was my next call up
0: and now uh bonus final you talked about a little bit of who you want has the blue jays to get since you're the uh you're an analyst with them you want uh, you, said a third base, you said you want to get him bat, a third baseman what about pitching who do you want to see them get pitching wise to help stable the bullpen slash starting rotation
1: well I would think it's going to be more of those mid range type starting pitchers I, I don't think you're looking at one of the any top top arm anymore I think with Barrios and Gosman and Manoa as your top three that's pretty darn good three I think as good as anyone in the division so I feel really good about that and then at the back end with Ryu and Pearson or whoever's stripling might make some starts. However, they fill that out. Again, a fifth starter is not the end all and be all right. You don't have to be a tremendous fifth. But there are some names out there. You know, you hear like names like Sonny Gray and those kind of guys that still have a year or two of control left. Maybe not crazy money, but good veteran guys that maybe could still give you some quality innings. There are some names like that. And then as I said, with relievers, it's tricky. I think the Blue Jays, and I say that because relievers, again, they can be fickle. They can be really good one year, not so good year the next. Yeah. But I think when you're when you're looking at how they're going to do it, the Blue Jays have been operating the last number of years at getting guys that still have years of control. And that's critical. That's why they got Simber and Richards. These guys are going to be around a little bit. That's that's key. But the, for the first time, when they acquired Barrios, they finally gave up some prospects. And they hadn't done that yet. They were really holding on to these prospects. Oh, yeah, and I kept waiting yeah. and waiting. But they did it. And I think because they know the time is now that the, it is go time for the Toronto Blue Jays right now. If this lockout were to end in the next couple of weeks, and I know it's not going to in the next couple of weeks. But what it does, I got. You know, time might be short, but I got a feeling they're going to still make another impactful move or two. I think so
0: too. I to think help this Ooh,
1: team yeah. compete in the East.
0: I, I think so, too, and I think you're right. It is. I mean, you got a core of young players, and you got veterans mixed in with that lineup. Same with the pitching, too. Like you just said, you got veterans, you got youngsters. I mean, it's a good combination to compete with any team, I'd say. I I really do. And especially in the AL East, which is the division is, like we talked about earlier, hectic. Hectic. And, like I said, the Orioles. you still got to worry about the Orioles sometime. They're going to be coming up soon, you know?
1: Well, it'll be a while for the Orioles. But I think the bigger thing, too, is when you – you know, the two names I keep mentioning, Bo and Vladdy. I mean, you can't can't keep just missing the playoffs because – Pretty soon you're going to wait, open your eyes and they're going to be free agents if they don't extend them. Right. So that's the other thing, too, is when you talk about salaries. Blue Jays are about to spend. They're, they're spending. They're, that's no they're, Nobody can say the Blue Jays are cheap, that's for sure, because they've gone out and spent some money these last few years. And they got some big bills coming up if they were able to extend either one of uh, Bo or Vlade because that's, that's going to be exactly. big-time money. Exactly.
0: Well, I do appreciate your time. I'm sorry we went over, but, hey, I still had fun. And I hope you did as well.
1: My my pleasure, Brent Byron.
0: Uh, I'll stay in touch. I got you on Instagram now. So, yeah, we'll keep in touch during the season if that happens again. God forbid I hope it does. It was fun. I'll send you the episode when we're done here. And, yeah, stay safe out there, all right?
1: All right, Byron. Thank you.
0: Yep, you're welcome. No problem. Anytime. And thank you, too, again. (laughs) Have a good night.
1: All right. Take care.
0: You, too. Joe Sadell, everybody, former Major League catcher. Hope you all have a good night. Stay safe. This concludes episode 69. <coughs> have a good night.